Welcome to This Week in the Warner Archive Collection, where we discuss our newest releases. I'm George Feltenstein, and I'm proud to be joined by my colleagues, Matt Patterson and D.W. Ferranti. Nine new additions to the Warner Archive Collection headline the news this week as we bring you another Warner Archive Collection podcast. First and foremost, we always like to shout out the news when we have something new on Blue. And this week, we have a fine film indeed celebrating its 20th anniversary. We have Neil Jordan's Michael Collins, starring Liam Neeson, Julia Roberts, Alan Rickman, a wonderful film making its Blu-ray debut with a brand new transfer to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the Irish Revolution. We have two new TV releases to talk about on DVD, We continue the adventures of doctors Gannon and Lochner in Medical Center as we bring you the sixth, the penultimate season of the seven-season CBS 69 to 76 classic. And this stars Chad Everett and James Daly and a host of guest stars. And you fanatics who are fanatical about the Centurions, your wish is fulfilled as we complete that series with part two of Centurions with 30 additional episodes of the animated adventures of the Centurions. And for people who like live action classic movies, we have three for you that continue the adventures of the wonderful Marion Davies. First, from 1930, with Technicolor sequence included, we have The Floridora Girl. And also from the same year, Not So Dumb, and 1933's Pega My Heart all starring the lovely Marion Davies in her MGM period as a sound star. Then we move to the 60s and 70s where we have cutting-edge cinema. We have a romantic comedy of epic proportions, a fine pair, starring Rock Hudson and Claudia Cardinale. Then from 1970, a very, very serious, austere, and remarkable film. Peter O'Toole and Susanna York star in 1970s Brotherly Love, and we wrap things up with 1972's black exploitation classic Melinda, directed by Hugh A. Robertson and starring Calvin Lockhart. So much to discuss. Let's begin with Michael Collins on Blu-ray. Now, I have to confess that I feel very ambivalent about talking about Michael Collins because, to me, it's still a new film. And it's been out for 20 years. Well, I, I would I come from the same perspective because when you're dealing with a library that goes back over 100 years now because our oldest movie in our library is from 1914, when you're dealing with that much cinema, a film from 20 years ago, which 20 years goes by awful fast, especially <laughs> as you get older. And, but Michael Collins, we just brought out on DVD. Yeah, we just were talking about it. 16 by 9 widescreen iteration not that long ago. And uh, that was derived from a 1080i HD master that had been done a few years back. But this new Blu-ray is from a brand new 1080p HD master that was created specifically for this Blu-ray and specifically in commemoration of the 100th anniversary of the Irish Rebellion. And it's hard to remember Liam Neeson 
before he was taken. This is the actor Liam Neeson, not the action star Liam Neeson. Speaking of acting, as you alluded to, this film has a remarkable assembly of actors. All the people I mentioned, and I forgot to mention Stephen Ray. Uh, I was yes, and it's a, a film by a great director, Neil Jordan. It's a, one of the better biopics ever made. It's about a very controversial but important figure in 20th century history, and it comes with a new commentary. And it is shot. Yes, Neil Jordan recorded a new commentary specifically for this Blu-ray release. It also comes with the South Bank Show special, which was on the DVD previously that has been carried over. And um, we really should speak to the remarkable cinematography mm-hmm. from Chris Menges. And there's a very distinct and special look to this film. It's not supposed to look like a contemporary film. It's supposed to look like a film that represents the era of 1916. And we, we've talked about other Irish Troubles films in the past, and this fits right into those sequences and this film is actually also very important over in the Europe because they had a whole series of special screenings for this over there and I think that this was prepared for that audience right as well I think they had like a in London they had a big screening yes once we decided as a company to move forward with this new master there were many proceedings put in place in the UK especially and in Ireland yeah for this film to be seen and uh, this is a big deal this This is is a a big deal deal and the film was not as successful in the United States as it was overseas no and that's uh, and the reason why I brought that up is that it's actually very important to see because you uh, Americans don't really even understand Irish heritage they don't understand their own history much less the very complicated history of Ireland and its relationship with England even though it feels a little old because of the immediacy of the photography it feels like a contemporary uh, war movie it is a contemporary film for all intents and purposes the style of the filmmaking we have the film made by a filmmaker who is really in the early days of his film career he probably was only about 10 years or so into his yeah filmmaking yeah, uh-huh. And he's still making films, and he's a remarkably talented director who's done some great work. And this film was uh, very well received critically, but had trouble finding an audience here, but did not have trouble finding an audience on home video where it's been a perennial favorite, and it's been also shown on television quite frequently. And now we have a new beautiful master with which it can arrive on Blu-ray for all to own. So we highly recommend that you run to your computer and place an order for Michael Collins on Blu-ray right away at your favorite e-tailer. But don't trip on your way or else you might have to dial 911 and have people from, I don't know, a medical center come and rescue. Matthew, 1974-1975-911 didn't really exist yet. Oh. People were dialing Big Red Zero. George could maybe speak about what was going on behind the scenes at the production studio in 1974-1975 to actually sort of underscore how remarkable this final two seasons of Medical Center are because these guys were producing quality, groundbreaking, controversial, cutting-edge medical drama while everything was falling apart outside them. It had started falling apart 
in the previous season, and that is that MGM was basically, for all intents and purposes, getting out of the movie business and getting out of the TV business with the exception of the fact that they had a success in Medical Center and were continuing to produce it. So the only thing that was going on at MGM in 1974, when they actually, when they started filming this season, MGM was on the precipice of a little bit of a renaissance caused by a little bit of a movie called That's Entertainment, uh, yeah. which was originally conceived as a television special to celebrate the studio's 50th anniversary and its musical heritage. It turned out to gross $25 million, which was a lot of money back then, and be the sixth biggest picture of the year and draw attention to the MGM musicals. And Dan Milnick, who was the head of production at the studio, brought in certain talents to start re-upping the theatrical product. Uh-huh. And you would start to see the bear the fruits of that their labors in 1975 with movies like Wind and the Lion and the Sunshine Boys right. and Hearts of the West. But in 1974, the only thing that was immediately happening was Medical Center. And this is a show in its sixth of seven seasons, and Joe Gannon's sideburns change yet again. (laughs) That's how you track it in the photography. Now, there's one standout episode from the season um, because it got a citation from the American Cancer Society for its sensitive and revealing look at breast cancer, which and Shirley Knight stars, and it was very much a taboo subject with a lot of shame and stigma attached to it. And this was the beginning of our country turning the, that... The war on cancer. Yeah, was turning right that whole thought process around. It's really remarkable when you think this is a little over 40 years ago, but it was taboo to talk about cancer. You and don't see it on any... you had these television taking the first step, which is still really going still on today, yep. if not more so now today than ever before. But television willing to take on subject matter head on. And Medical Center was dealing with lots of issues that were controversial, not just cancer. I don't understand how cancer, you know, having a disease can be controversial. But they were nervous about this. Why? I don't know. Speaking of in the news, one of the issues uh, in an episode of this season, they deal with uh, undocumented workers. Right. Very much so, and medical care for them. But then it gets a little weird, yeah, too. Yeah, well, it's 74, 75. Uh, <laughs> and we also deal with uh, nymphomania, in the faith news. healing versus medical healing. It's very much in the news. White supremacy. And something that, that I very much relate to because I went to uh, an integrated elementary school where the, the mentally challenged went to school with, and they actually tackle that right. in this episode. You try to integrate as opposed to institutionalize. And that was a huge with, deal. Yeah. Huge that was deal at this time. Really, it was a, a rule-changing thing in society, in school, and hopefully for the best. As with every season of Medical Center, there is a festival of great acting from both actors and actresses of renown. Dan, can you share with us some of the special guest stars that appear in season six of Medical Center? Well, speaking of actresses, we have the great Sid Charisse. Returning to her MGM roots, and they even have clips of her old films. Uh, The also great Rita Moreno, and the to-be-great young Jodie Foster. 
Is this pre-Disney Jodie Foster? No, this is post. Yeah, Napoleon post. Samantha, but before Freaky Friday. So Freaky Friday. She was still in her Disney. Disney days. <laughs> now, on the guy side, you see some great TV actors like Peter Strauss, Dabney Coleman, David Burney, and then... Uh, Fans of Law and & Order and Dirty Dancing will be pleased to see Jerry Orbach. Well, there weren't too many guest stars in The Centurions, though. No, but there's a very important event happens in the second half of The Centurions. What happens in the back 30 episodes? Three become five. What? Yes. Joining our heroes are John Thunder and Rex Charger. So that take is... that, Doc Terror. And they join in an extended sequence, which has traditionally been shown somewhat in a non-contiguous order. Right. And we have done our very best fans to meticulously go through and note plot elements and make sure that part one and part two of Centurions is in an order that makes plot sense. Just for background, we talked about this the last time when we were releasing part one. First run syndication had daily Monday through Friday broadcasts in various cities, and the stations sometimes would mix up the order in which the episodes were broadcast. So there was continuity dilemmas galore, or as they were. I don't really think they watched what they were putting on, Dan. Do you suspect that? They can't because we have episodes where that introduce characters airing after episodes they've already been in. Right. But if you want to see it in whatever order you want, you can feel free you, to go absolutely. online. Fans have been asking for this series to be completed. We're happy to accede to their request. 65 episodes total. And uh, there goeth the Centurions on your DVD shelf with part two. You complete the whole collection. And if you have a comment or a note on the order that we came up with, please feel free to write us. We will share your opinions openly. You'll get the address later. Meanwhile, we go back to the big screen and we go back to basically the dawn of talkies with a period piece from that period, meaning that this is a film from the early talkie era that takes place decades before. It's called The Floridor Girl, and it stars Marion Davies, and we have three Marion Davies movies making their DVD debut this week. And The Floridor Girl actually refers to a type of performance that was going on really at the turn of the 20th century, where the Floridor girls were basically the rockets of their day, I guess. I think that's a very that's good analogy. Yep. Dan came up with a great analogy for this, and I'll say it because you'll think that I did. Gold Diggers of 1890. There you go. Which I love that because that really describes this kind of to a T. But I, Daisy's a good girl. She is. I'm of a generation and there's a pretty sizable time frame where our first exposure to Marion Davies was through Citizen Kane. Me too. Because her films weren't really in any sort of regular rotation. No. And she was sort of unknown and you would just read about her as opposed to seeing her films. And, and in film school they would contextualize her as kind of right. a washed up actress. And, and then to we... clarify, Marion Davies was not in Citizen Kane. Okay. Oh yes, yes. 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 Thank you. Just it's a little too inside folks. Yeah, the sorry. thing is that Citizen Kane very closely was patterned after the <laughs> real life William Randolph Hearst and his relationship with actress Marion Davies with whom he had a basically uh, she was basically his mistress and because he was a devout Catholic he wouldn't get divorced 
but he uh, had a lifelong relationship yes. with Ms. Davies. And it's all well known now, but uh, Citizen Kane was very thinly veiled as to what the movie was about and who the movie was about. So Marion Davies' fame in later years came from people looking into Citizen Kane and the real-life story behind it. Right. But that did diminish yes. Marion Davies as a performer, and it wasn't until the 1980s when suddenly you were able to see Marion Davies' movies on home video, on VHS tapes, and then Laserdiscs, and then eventually on cable television, and now on DVD, a lot of her filmography is available, and you find out that she was quite a talented comedian and a talented actress in both the silent and sound era. And a great deal of her film work is now available for many to see. And yet there still are some unreleased films. There are also many silent films which remain locked in the vault and some are lost. But so much has been found and released, and these three films that we're going to talk about today are all making their home video debut. Not So Dumb, which is the next one we're going to talk about, is a good description of Marion Davies because some <laughs> yes, people yeah. thought of her <laughs> as being a dumb blonde, and she was not so dumb. She was actually quite a wit and uh, Not So Dumb shows her off to great advantage and has a very prestigious uh, writing pedigree. And has a prestigious writer acting in it. That's right. David Ogden Stewart, who uh, would later rate Going Hollywood and uh, most famously co-wrote uh, Philadelphia's Story, <laughs> appears Sorry. as an actor in the film. And he is quite good, although I think he made the right choice being the writer because he was uh, quite gooder as a writer. Screenwriter. Yes. In the, with the play being by Philip Berry. Yeah. But Not So Dumb was also co-written by Mark Connolly, mm -hmm. who had some acting appearances but was primarily known as a writer. So he had great talent at work. And the plot of the film is... She has a fiancé that she wants to do well, and she needs to get him set up in business, so she throws a weekend party at, at the family California estate, and uh, she's the kind of girl that always says the wrong thing. Always. So things go out of control and then get in control. And it's unique, it's witty, and it's very, very well written and cinematic for an early talkie. And it has a director of some skill keeping everything tied together. <laughs> King Vidor. This was uh, MGM putting all its best people behind a fine vehicle for Marion Davies, and the results speak for themselves. It's uh, a great movie and a lot of fun, and we recommend Not So Dumb. This next film, Peg of My Heart, is actually a remake of an earlier tearjerker that it was a silent film and one of the rare film appearances of stage legend Laurette Taylor. And that was filmed in the 1920s. MGM decided, or Marion Davies and MGM decided, that it was ripe for remake in 1933, hence this version of Peg of My Heart. And it's a very bold acting choice, because here's Marion Davies who is sort of been a jaded, wise, funny, witty, mature, experienced woman in almost all of her roles, shedding 20 years and playing an innocent sort of Pollyanna-ish character. Anne of Green Gables. Ass. Yes, very much so, and she totally pulls it off. It's a coming-of-age fable, a young girl. She's taken from her Irish fisherman father to... 
because to, because her uh, she has English relatives that are sitting on a two million pound fortune. Yeah. But she can only get this fortune if she goes to live with them and disavows her relationship with her father. And then being English and she being Irish, they promptly more or less make her an indentured servant. So by all means, add Peg of My Heart to your collection and we'll have more Marion Davies to talk about not too long from now. But in the meantime, we're going to go to more contemporary cinema. And as a matter of fact, we have the film that basically I believe was one of the very earliest of the Cinema Center films, which was CBS's venture into filmmaking for the first time, the first of four. And Cinema Center did this in partnership with National General Pictures, which was their distributor, and National General was purchased by Warner Brothers, which is why this film ended up being part of our library. But this is a delightful romantic caper comedy called A Fine Pair, starring Rock Hudson and Claudia Cardinale. And it's a very different Rock Hudson than the staid Rock Hudson of the 1950s that you see in those boring Universal movies or in the Doris Day romantic comedies. This is a much more mature, realistic Rock Hudson. And a very different rock than the Macmillan rock. Oh, yes. But that would this, follow for the small screen. But yeah. This rock goes through uh, quite a transformation, and it kind of makes sense for 1968. Well, like a lot of 60s films, which unfortunately tend to be overly male-centric because society. But this is about <laughs> a square learning to become himself thanks to a swinging free-spirited chick. Only this is all done around a jewel caper, and it's international. And I just want to mention the scores by Ennio Morricone. And Claudia Cardinale knows one or two things about jewel capers. Yes. It starts in New York. Rock Hudson's a square cop, this beautiful Italian from his past. She was a child, and now she tries to get him to help her put jewels she back. She just wants to bring the jewels back. What could go wrong? A lot goes wrong, and he finds he likes a taste of the swinging 60s. But you know, if Claudia, if she had asked me, I would have done the same thing. Yeah. This is a lot of fun, unexpected, and uh, has this movie been around really? Well, it was, heard of it? It, it was in our initial offering in Warner Archive Instant. Oh, that's right. But it was in 4x3 open mat form. This is the first 16x9 widescreen And this is remastered from... Yes. Good. So this way you get to see it in its proper aspect ratio as the director intended, which is the case for all three of these films we're about to talk about. The next film is called Brotherly Love, and it's from 1970, and it is not exactly your average MGM movie. This is MGM <laughs> 1970, and Peter O'Toole and Susanna York star in this twisted tale about an unconventional relationship, and it's based on a work entitled Country Dance. These are upper-class siblings with a twisted relationship. And both leads are quite good. And Peter O'Toole especially seems like he is having the time of his life in this. Well, it is sort of the kind of role that O'Toole delighted in, which was the handsome man of class who had a very twisted inner self. Oh, my. And just plays it to the hilt. It's hard to explain because it is a very unique film experience. It's kind of a black comedy of manners. The work that it's based on was written by, I'm just going to mention this because Tunes of Glory is one of my favorite movies, which was written by James Kennaway, who also wrote the screenplay and the play and the short story that all, this all comes from. So it really comes from fine literary background and should have been a big hit. 
It was a little too sophisticated for its time. It still is. I mean, <laughs> you, it's a fascinating I, movie with great performances, but the underlying unsettledness of it is still... It makes know, you a little uncomfortable yeah. to watch. But that's why for like 1970, you know, this is the time when people were trying to figure out how much could you get away with. Right. And this got away with being uncomfortable, but yet very tasteful yes. in like this... Right funny way and that's what keeps you watching this i was glued to this movie and this is one of those films that we needed to remaster 16 by 9 because the last time it had been mastered was in the early 90s oh yeah desperately needed to be brought up to the current standards and the same can be said for melinda which is the next film, which also, like Brotherly Love, is one of our most highly requested titles. There was no good master for this one either? No. Again, this is MGM, right? Mm-hmm. And this is 1972. MGM was really trying to find something. to. Well, like, there actually was a corporate edict during the James Aubrey era to make low-budget films, small-risk films, and that also gave an opportunity to young filmmakers to make small films without big stars that could possibly deliver profit to the company. Some of them succeeded, some of them did not. Melinda was not a box office success, but has since developed a reputation as really important in the history of black cinema. Absolutely. Yep. I mean, there's there, you watch this movie and then you look at the date it came out and you realize, oh, this movie's reach far exceeded its fame. This film was very, very hard to see legally. And we've now changed that. This is the first home video release of the film. Yeah, and this is not normally long, talked about enough. No, not talked about enough. It is talked about in certain circles and usually saying, why is this not available on home video? <laughs> right. And as we have been doing now for seven years, as March 23rd marks our seventh Ooh. anniversary for the Warner Archive Collection, it is our job to bring cinema of all kinds and of all tastes from our vaults to your homes and Melinda is just one more example of a rarity that needed to be unearthed, remastered, and brought to DVD from the Warner Archive Collection, and we're proud to bring it your way. So we urge you to look into this fine film, which will probably soon turn up in many festivals and probably pop up on television all of a sudden, and uh, people will say, hey, where has this film been all our life? But if you're going to want to own this, we highly recommend Calvin Lockhart and Vanetta McGee in Melinda. George, you mentioned that it is our Warner Archive birthday. That's right. We have released what well, it's probably over like 2,500 releases now. That's right. Something like that. And uh, we're coming up to the 300th podcast, and we just keep going. And you were mentioning festivals. We've been sponsoring festivals. And Dan and I, this weekend coming up, we're going to be going to uh, WonderCon to be doing some panels. And I just wanted to highlight a few little things from that because we wanted to mention some anniversaries coming up. Like right around now is the 60th anniversary of Forbidden Planet, which we have a wonderful Blu-ray for. And we're going to be doing Robbie the Robot's retirement party there. So that's going to be fun. So if you live in L.A. and are going to WonderCon, please feel free to bring cupcakes, robot-shaped cupcakes. (laughs) And if you hear this podcast after WonderCon, you can regret that you weren't able to get there in time. But 
the Blu-ray is still available. That's it's a fantastic set. And there's HD digital download. However you want to consume, you yeah. must have Forbidden Planet. That's okay. And we're also going to be talking. Uh, we, we do this musical segment called Toonstock, and we're featuring uh, Batman: Brave and the Bold, which is also available on Blu-ray. And we're going to be singing the Music Meister episode which is a lot of fun. And we're going to be doing a panel on Justice League, Justice League Unlimited versus Young Justice, also available on Blu-ray. And then we're going to be talking about the Golden Harvest releases. Unfortunately, I will not be able to attend as I have to wear my Easter bonnet since it's Easter parade time. We unfortunately don't have any letters this week. But if you want to send them, it would make the gentleman here so happy if you would. And you can send those letters too. Warner Archive Podcast. 3400 Riverside Drive, B160-4, that's in Burbank, California, 91522. So that wraps up this Warner Archive Collection podcast, but fear not, we will soon return with another Warner Archive podcast. But until that time, I'm George Feltenstein. I'm Matt Patterson. Rex Charger. Thanks for listening and look forward to the next Warner Archive podcast.